Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 264th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast, presented by Microsoft AI. In addition to THR's weekly Feinberg forecast, we encourage you to check out Awards Predictor, a new feature of THR's website powered by Microsoft AI and generated with Bing Predicts technology, which uses its own formula to project who will take home an Oscar on Hollywood's biggest night. You can learn more about Bing Predicts and vote for your favorite cast and crew by visiting hollywoodreporter.com slash awards predictor. And now on with the show. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today for our last contender conversation of this Oscar season is one of the most revered costume designers in film history. A woman who is best known for her 14 collaborations over three decades with Spike Lee, from School Days through Chirac, who has worked on a host of other major films over the years, including Steven Spielberg's Amistad and Ava DuVernay's Selma, and who, on the heels of her work in 2018 on Ryan Coogler's Black Panther, is now nominated for the Best Costume Design Oscar for the third time in her career, which brings her into a tie with Viola Davis and Octavia Spencer for the most overall Oscar nominations for a black woman in history, and who on Tuesday will receive the Career Achievement Award at the Costume Designers Guild Awards, the great Ruth E. Carter. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 58-year-old and I discussed a series of fateful events that led her into a career in costume design for film in the first place, initially at a time when there were very few, if any, other black women getting work in such a capacity, the root and secrets of success of her long collaboration with Lee, the special significance to her and to the world of Black Panther, plus much more. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Melissa Burden and Rika Zetopchi, a producer and the director-slash-producer of Period End of Sentence a 25-minute film now available on Netflix for which they are nominated for the Best Documentary Short Oscar. Period is about young women's access to sanitary pads, or lack thereof, in rural India, where menstruation is still largely a taboo subject. And it's also about how a group of girls on the other side of the world, specifically at Los Angeles' Oakwood School, helped to improve their situation. 
Melissa and Rika, thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. So, Melissa, you teach English at Oakwood, and this all sort of started in your classroom and then on a class trip. Can you give us the origin story? I would be happy to. So students approached me and asked if I would be the faculty sponsor for an organization called Girls Learn International. Girls Learn International is an organization that seeks to give high school students a voice in the global movement for equal access to education for all genders. <laughs> so as part of that, they send students as official delegates to the United Nations, to the Commission on the Status of Women, which occurs two weeks every March. And it was at this Commission on the Status of Women that the students and I heard about this issue of girls their own age dropping out of school and younger because they didn't have access to sanitary materials. And we also learned in that same trip about Morgan Anthem, who had made this machine to create affordable sanitary pads that the women could manufacture and sell. So we decided on the spot we need to send a pad machine to a village in India that was one of our partner organizations, Action India, and we needed to make a film about it to raise awareness. And so these first steps with the UN, that was back in 2012, 2013? 2013 was when we learned about this issue. The students began going there in 2012. And so when students came back and you came back and now wanted to take action to address this problem, that led to this group called the PAD Project? Correct. And so basically, these were the students that wanted to really maintain a focus on this issue and then use a documentary as a tool to make others aware of it? You say it exactly right. That's <laughs> correct. The PAD Project was the organization that became a nonprofit last year that we set up to be the go-between between rural villages in India and around the world, really, who might seek a PAD machine for their own communities. And we thought making a film would be the best way to raise awareness for this issue and that high school girls in particular would be the best advocates for this issue. One of the students, if I have my information correct, was your own daughter, right? She was in class with you. And then another one was the daughter of someone who would probably be a good person to know when you're trying to figure out how to raise (laughs) money for a film and get it seen by people. And that is Lisa Tavak, somebody who we all know who cover, you know, the awards beat. She's been doing it for a long time. Once this all got off the ground, how was she able to be helpful to you guys pre-India? We'll get to that in a moment. So pre-India, we had no idea what we were doing in terms of marketing or raising awareness involved in just creating a movement. So we didn't know how to even create a movement or get the word out. And so Lisa Tabak was very helpful in meeting with us to say, okay, hey, everybody, we need to make a one sheet. We need to make a slogan. We need to get some marketing out there. We need to make a pitch deck. That became a little later with the Mm -hmm. film, but these were things, you know, high schoolers and an English teacher, me, I hadn't heard about one sheets before in my life, but we did it and the students were very creative and that was enormously helpful. And I think it also made it real for us early Mm -hmm. on. And I think that was important to the school itself. I think that because people took the students and their daughters so seriously from having people like Lisa Tabak come in and advise about marketing to having the headmaster of our school 
school say, well, this seems like a good idea to do this. So nobody said, what? What are you doing? You know, so I think that helped. But lest anyone think that because Lisa's associating with people who are making multi-million dollar movies, that money just magically appeared here. <laughs> how was the financing actually arranged? So, no, money did not come easily at all. And we understood that we needed $11,000 in the first place to get the pad machine and to get a year's worth of raw material. So that was our first need. Totally then, apart from a dark documentary, just the actual from a documentary. Yeah. And then when we began this journey, before we had the great good fortune of meeting Rika, we talked to other filmmakers who said, yes, we can make this film for $800,000. <laughs> and so we're, wild. We're, we're, we recognized, oh my God, we're not going to be able to make a film for that money and raise that kind of money. But we had other people advise us who said, you could probably do this for like $50,000. So we thought like, okay, we're going to get the pad machine, we're going to get the materials, and we're going to make a Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not sure if that answers yeah, no, it's your great. question. It's great. Exactly. And so okay. once you... But, I mean, I'm hearing about, like, bake sales and all kinds oh, of stuff. Oh, yeah. yes. It's an They're, ongoing effort. Yeah, an yeah. ongoing effort, and we were always running out of money all the time. <laughs> so even before the Kickstarter began, we needed to raise money to put things into motion, to start our partnership and to send them things to India already. So the students held numerous bake sales. Those are a good source of income. People like mm -hmm. cookies at lunch. <laughs> and the students were really good. And we did yoga-thons, which I had somebody asked me, what's a yogathon? What it is, it's like, you know how people do running marathons and you sign up to sponsor someone? So a yogathon, they would do yoga for many hours at a time and get people <laughs> to sponsor them. We had all kinds of fundraisers. And then even after the first Kickstarter, where we did make our goal, thanks to the activism and everything, we actually ran out of money. So then it was bake sales all over again, right. yogathons, and another Kickstarter. Last question before we turn to Rika. Why was it important to you, to the students, it sounds like to everybody involved, that the director of this eventual documentary be a young woman? Well, that's probably evident, but I think that I have said before that I think generationally I had to deal with my own embarrassment. Maybe shame is too strong a word about talking in front of a lot of people about periods and menstruation. And I took so much courage from my students who were like, I can talk about my period assembly. I don't care. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, that's amazing. Okay. And so I think it was a natural follow from all of this activism on the part of the young students that somebody young and talented as Rika would appreciate where they were coming from and appreciate what we were doing. So it's just really good luck to have found this. And the daughter of another of our producers, Ruby Schiff, is the one who found Garrett Schiff, who found Rika as a top sheet. And so I feel like all along there's been this kismet of daughters inspiring their parents. And that's how come I feel like we've been so lucky because people were moved because of their daughter's commitment to social action. Yeah. So, Rika, who is good enough to still be with us after all those. <laughs> totally, no, it was not. That's me. It's, I, I just knew that we needed to establish. This is a very interesting situation to have 
the producer who gets you to the promised land and now who carries on from there. So, Rika, what I want to ask you is what was going on in your life at the time that you first heard about this <laughs> and what did you make of all this? I love that you asked me that. What was going on in my life at that time? <laughs> because I was 23 years old. Right. I was literally a week out of USC film school. Right. And I was so broke, like so <laughs> broke and driving for Uber, trying to figure out how to pay back my student loan debts. And I get this call from Garrett and he tells me about this issue. And literally the day he called me, I was getting on a plane to go visit my family in Europe. Mm-hmm. But I get this call and... How'd you know Garrett again? So I knew Garrett through my boyfriend, Sam Davis, mm-hmm. who is my creative partner on this film. Right. And we had worked together with Garrett on another project mm-hmm. at USC. And so I hadn't talked to Garrett in like a year, mm-hmm. but you know, he found me some how he was like, hey, I watched some of your narrative shorts and, you know, I this is what my daughter is doing and this is what Melissa and this, this amazing group of young women are doing. We need a young female director. And I was like, Garrett, are you sure? I've never done a documentary mm-hmm. before. And he's like, I think you'll be really interested in this. And so I learned about it and I was just like, you know, how can you not be so inspired and moved to come on board? It's just the spirit of the young female activists. And I've always been a young woman, female activist myself. And then learning about this thing that I just had no idea all my life was actually happening around the world. So, you know, it felt like a really natural and important thing to focus on and a great first documentary to delve into. And so here we are. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so that's incredible. You hadn't made a a documentary of any sort before. You're driving for Uber, and now (laughs) you're going to have to, like, head to India, right? So how quickly did this all come together? The first thing I did was I called one of my old producing professors from USC who had just shot a film in India, and I was like, Rachel Ward. I was like, Rachel, I need help. I'm going to be directing (laughs) and possibly even producing a film in (laughs) India. (laughs) What do you do? And she kind of linked me up with Guneet Mohan who is this incredible, like, force of nature, Indian producer, owner of Sikya Entertainment, and produced The Lunchbox, and has Mm. so many ties in India. And so I met with her, and then when I met with her, discovered that Guneet was actually really close friends with Stacey Schur, who is one of the parents and one of the producers involved in this film, and it sort of just all came full circle. And that really, you know, Guneet's connection really helped us kind of hit the ground running in India and get all the local crew and connections that we needed there. And when you got to India, I'm trying to piece together in my own head where the story already was and then what unfolded when you were there. So the students at Oakwood had paid for and sent this pad machine to the community that you were going to, but had the machine arrived? Was it already you know, shaking up their lives or was that all unfolding as you guys were there with the cameras? It was all unfolding as we were there with the cameras, which is what you want and Mm -hmm. what we needed for the film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a big effort to try and time that correctly so that we could arrive with our crew and make sure that we were really capturing sort of the before and the after, the progress of this machine, the presence of this machine. And so when we first arrived in India, there were tons of crates filling this room and they were not unboxed. You know, the machine was just sitting there and nobody really knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. There was just this thing, this alien that had arrived in the village and was sitting tucked away in a room. So when we went there the first time, we were really trying to survey and get 
a glimpse into this world before this machine and really understand what is the mentality and the thinking around menstruation in this area. And, you know, it becomes very evident if you see the film, the first like four or so minutes of the film, it's sort of focuses on that taboo that's just this really negative mm-hmm. force and, and this really negative source of shame that these women have to deal with. So I guess another issue that might have come up is, do either of you speak the local language? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. We, we don't. And Sam and I were in India, and we were with our Indian producer, Mandakini Kakar, who conducted the interviews for us, mm-hmm. and the rest of our crew was local. So, you know, it was really important kind of on our drives in the morning to the villages for me and Mandy to have conversations about what the day was going to look like, what subjects we were going to be speaking to, what we already knew about our subjects. And then Mandy would conduct the interviews and I would sit next to her and then she would sort of give us like a one sentence summary every 10 minutes or so. So by the time you're done shooting and you come back to the States, you really don't have a clue what you <laughs> like have. what you yeah. have. So it was really in the process of transcribing and translating the footage many months later and then just sitting and watching everything that you realize wow this is what we've captured and I think it was that moment when we watched the footage back that we really understood like what kind of a film we were making yeah and yes and I should also add that Action India which is the organization that's in Delhi which is the grassroots organization that partnered with us they were the go-between between the village and us does that make sense? I don't know. Anyway, they they <laughs> helped translate for us. And then there was a time when Mandakini was able to Skype with the students where so she could translate so the students could be kept involved that way. And then the Girls Learn International students in Delhi do speak some English. So... It's it's really like like one, two, three, four, maybe even five different organizations working together together. to make sure everybody was talking all the time. A lot of emails. Well, and and Melissa, I guess another thing is like, when did you have the time to do this? You're a school teacher. Was this in the summer or when? Um, I have to thank the Oakwood School (laughs) for um, letting me cancel class sometimes to have Skypes and conferences. And we would just meet. We would just do it. We just did it. We just met at lunch. We met in summers, we met winter breaks, spring breaks, and it just, I won't say there weren't times when we thought, oh my God, this is too much and too challenging. And then something great happened and we were just like, no, we have to keep going. We have to keep going. And something good would happen. I've been saying I'm teaching the Odyssey in English right now. And that feels (laughs) apropos, a journey of twists and turns, but it has a good ending. There is a homecoming. Well, so I believe just by the math, many, if not all of the students who start Started the PAD project with you must have now graduated. Is that right? Yes. And so understandably, based on what you've gone through, it seems like you're all still in touch. And I guess I wonder from your perspective, how do you think the experience of being a part of this endeavor and seeing where it's led, both for the people in India and for the film itself, how has that changed the students? How has that impacted the students or the former students? So... There are former students, and I should say there are also current students. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite things is that every year, so I teach ninth grade as well as seniors, and every year a new crop of ninth graders comes and says, we want to be part of the PAD project. So I think there's a wonderful sisterhood and a kind of passing of the torch. We invite boys too, (laughs) 
But we all do keep in touch. And I think that most of the students have, have said that it's been life changing and the most profound experience that they feel like they've been fortunate enough to be a part of. I think most of them do plan to go to India after Rika filmed the second time. I was able to go with three students to the village where we screened the film. And the women from India are coming for the Oscar really? um, week. And they're going to be having homestays at the homes of the families who went to India with us when we came to visit the pad machine and see the progress. So it's really nice to come full circle yeah. that way. We have seven people coming from Action India, three of whom were in the film, Gunit Mangan and Mandakini Kakar, our producer. So we've got seven people coming and we're excited to, That's to great. see them. Well, finally, I've got to ask you if we cut to just a few weeks ago, nomination morning, when you guys got this exciting news. What was it like going to school that day? Melissa, have you heard reaction from India, Rika? And then what's next for both of you? So, Melissa, let's start it out. It was crazy at school. It was ridiculous. I never felt like a celebrity teacher in my own school. But it was we were so out of it because just in terms of the adrenaline, the excitement, it after all was 520 in the morning. We had gathered in a basement at the home of one of the high school students and we were all joyous and we came to school sort of shaking with excitement and happiness and, and the news had traveled fast. And the second I got on campus, everyone's like, Melissa, Melissa, you're going to the Oscars. Oh my God. And so they immediately wanted to see the film in the classroom. And I'm like, oh, okay. I was too tired to teach that day anyway. So so instead of teaching English those days, we watched the documentary and it was a lot of fun. It was it was a great feeling. That's great. And Rika, how about from India? Have you heard from the people who were part of this, both just about the film itself, but then also I'm sure even they know that as far as they are from LA, the Oscars still have some meaning there, I would think. Of course. I mean, I think everyone is so ecstatic in India and news travels so quickly. We woke up the next morning and just had this like surge of Indian press, <laughs> like so many countless articles and, and so much excitement. And I think one of my favorite stories is, and I wish I was there with a camera to document this, but Sneha, our main character in the film, basically we had our producers in Action India go to Sneha and her family and her parents to try to get her to come to the Academy Award it's like, hey, we made it to the Oscars. We want to get you out there. And initially her father said, no, absolutely not. And so it was this really big effort from the Action India team to try to go back and persuade him. And what were his reasons? Just I, she had okay. never been. She had, she, yeah, she had yeah. never left the village before. Mm -hmm. She's actually never actually been to Delhi before. Wow. And Delhi's about, you know, the, the biggest city, and it's about two hours away. Mm -hmm. So finally, they were able to get his approval and, you know, expediting the process, trying to get visas, trying to get them on their way to the States. But I am just so ecstatic to see Sneha and really, like, witness her experience of coming out here. I Honestly, think it's going to be so yeah, special. I, uh... It just sort of flashes back a little bit. I, I don't know if this is a totally valid reference, but the first Oscars that I ever attended or covered was in 2009, and it was the year of Slumdog Millionaire. Uh -huh. And they brought the children who were mm -hmm. actually, I yes. think, in similar situations. And it was a really amazing thing to see them process. You know, not only are you taking them out of their, you <laughs> know, home community— yeah. And putting them somewhere else, but this is extreme for anyone in America to right. to Somewhere. see. 
but I think they had a lot of fun. Gunit Manga they, was there for that, and she tells a story where she was with one of those oh, younger yeah, boys yeah. that you were talking about from Slumdog, and so she 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 was sitting with him, and and it was an amazing experience for them. I think pretty interesting. And one other thing I would just say that the outpouring from different organizations around the world, from Girl Scouts to sororities to legal firms to schools, universities, has been overwhelming and so gratifying. People saying, where can I show the film? I want to help. I want to set up a pad machine here. I want to screen this film for my Girl Scout troop, for my school, for my high school. So it's just been really wonderful to see that. That's great. So Finally, our last, last, last question, what happens now after February 24th? I know that, you know, Melissa, you're still going to be a teacher, (laughs) and Rika, you're still going to be a filmmaker, but I think something has definitely changed, right? Yeah, I think we we really got to get back to work with with the PAD project. It's really interesting. It's been a huge blow up for the PAD project, and we're on the world stage now, and this is a really incredible opportunity for us to be able to share this issue on the world stage. And we're starting conversations in countries we never even imagined. Absolutely. And so now we sort of have to go back to the PAD project because this was such a grassroots thing. I mean, there's students and teachers and parents and a young filmmaker. Like, <laughs> we got to go back and we got to restructure and, and figure out how we're going to sort of create, the mission of the fulfill the mission yeah. and right. sort of create yeah. the infrastructure so that we can deal with this on such a large scale. But the great news is now we have the support. I think whatever happens in a week, just the groundswell of offers of support, help, partnership, there's so much. So I think now to set kind of corral that all that great energy and try and get more pad machines and and get them to the right places and the right people and start this well contrary to popular belief i guess it sounds like period does not mean end of sentence this goes (laughs) this goes on right thank you thank you for coming in and congratulations thank Thank you you, scott Scott. and now for my interview with ruth e carter All right, Ms. Carter, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. We usually begin with where you were born and raised and, and what your parents did for a living. But first, I have to ask, what does the E stand for? You go by Ruth E. Carter, right? I go by Ruth Carter. The E was attached when I was in high school because people called me Ruthie. Oh. And then I started spelling it R-U-T-H-E. And somehow that went into a credit, and then the period was added... <laughs> My middle name is Elaine. Okay. So just for trivia buffs out there. (laughs) Well, (laughs) crazy. So, all right. So where were you born and raised in and what did your parents do for a living? I was born and raised in Springfield, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. Western New England. Mm -hmm. I'm the product of a divorced family, single parent home. Mm -hmm. I'm the youngest of eight. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my God. Wait, I was I was your mom raising all eight of you, right? All eight of us. Oh my God! Five brothers, oh my two God. sisters. And I guess you know, fate plays a role in all of our lives. I I suppose one of the most fateful things was a piece of equipment was in the room where you were growing up. Is that right? Yeah, there was an old sewing machine. It was like a consult, and it was nice big wooden desk looking thing with some drawers down the side, and that was my. Uh, desk for homework, my drawing table, and one day I lifted up one side of it, and lo and behold, there was an old sewing machine that you kind of pull out, and in the 
uh, this, the other side of the machine was the kind of cutting side. Mm-hmm. So, and in the drawers, there were some patterns, some you know, simplicity patterns. So I thought, you know, this is cool. <laughs> and that had been there because your mother used it, or what was the origin? My mother wasn't using that sewing machine. I don't know where that sewing machine mm-hmm. came from. It was something that, I, as we moved from house to house, mm-hmm. it moved with us. Mm-hmm. So it was something that maybe my mother was gifted, or as she kept having kids, maybe she started out sewing for us and yeah. then said, ah, it's too many of you. <laughs> but basically, that discovery was when you were about 10? Yeah, I was like 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. You know, like I said, that was the desk Mm -hmm. in the room. I mean, we didn't have a big house. Mm -hmm. For eight kids, you'd think you'd have, you know, a big house. We didn't have a big house. So my sister and I shared a room. My brothers, they shared rooms. So that was a desk. And then after my sister went to college, you know, I had the run of the room. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of creating in that space. So you you really taught yourself how to... Work that and yeah. just were being creative. I was just being creative. So when you went off to Hampton University, yes. what did you imagine you were going to pursue there? What did you think your focus was going to be? I guess I didn't look at this thing I was doing in, in high school with theater arts and, and drawing as a profession. So I chose a profession to study, and that was education. Mm-hmm. I chose to be in the field of special education, mm-hmm. and that's what I, what I chose to study at Hampton, special education. But in my mind, it was going to be studying theater for the deaf. So I still wanted to be associated with theater right. by learning sign language and learning how to teach uh, special needs children and then also working with theater for the deaf. Can I interrupt for one second? Why do you think you were gravitating towards special education and you know working with deaf children? There were some special needs people in my family. Mm-hmm. My cousin... Marcus was uh, emotionally disturbed. I grew up with him. I didn't realize he was emotionally disturbed because he was a lot of fun uh-huh. growing up. And as I became adult and he became adult, I realized he was special needs. Uh-huh. And Marcus was great. He was fantastic. And I thought that I could creatively teach these children. And through theater, I wanted to also perform. Mm -hmm. And I thought Theater for the Deaf was a great performance vehicle. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was something that I could do as well. Mm -hmm. And that's where my interest was. Got it. So what happened at Hampton that sort of turned you in a different direction? I was always in the theater. I was taking education classes and I was learning how to teach children math and and I was spending a, more time in the theater, though, than I was learning how to teach children uh, social <laughs> studies. <laughs> so I had to make a choice if I was going to spend that much time uh, auditioning for plays and working on theater projects, then I needed to make it a course of study. As a result of making it a course of study, you're now acting some of the time, but also they caught wind of the fact that you were very good at 
sewing and things like that? No, I didn't catch wind of that because I really didn't reveal that. I really thought that I was a performer Mm -hmm. because I had done some performing in after school and summer school things Mm -hmm. in high school. So I really thought I was a really good, profound (laughs) performer, like I could do Medea. (laughs) But I didn't make an audition. And the professor, who was also the director, just asked me, just random, you know, you want to try doing the costumes for this play? And I did. He or she had no reason to know that you actually were skilled at that. Mm, and I don't think I was necessarily skilled right, at right, it. Right, right, right. He just said, want to try it. Right. There's a costume shop upstairs and nobody's in it. Maybe he saw that I had a diligence for the craft, mm-hmm. that I had a dedication to the theater arts mm-hmm. department. He probably wanted to cast me Mm -hmm. because he knew I would be there and he thought you know I got to figure out something that this student can do for us and I did I said okay were you yourself already a stylish person not at all no how would you describe the way you dressed I think I was more like the (laughs) anti-fashion So what what years are we talking about when you were at, at Hampton? I graduated in 84. Okay. So it was 81 to 84 So what was early 80s fashion like? You know, it was like the mismatch earrings. It was uh, Lisa Bonet. <laughs> I had the, you know, feather cut. Uh, it was the Gerbeau jeans, I think, uh, high waist jeans. Uh, you know, but I, I just didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have right, any money. Right. I remember stealing my mother's Sears card when I went home for vacation (laughs) and riding my 10-speed bike to Sears in Hampton and uh, walking around Sears and buying clothes with her credit card. Buying more than I should have bought, realizing that I was on a 10-speed bike and, like, riding the bike with two, like, shopping bags. Oh, my God. Back to school. What happened when she found out? She didn't say anything. She didn't say anything. She knew you needed it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you have a very positive experience in the theater at Hampton. You graduate. Now you're out in the big, bad real world. And it sounds like for a while, you certainly wanted to remain in that area of of work, but there wasn't immediately a paying option for that, right? People were not, they they were happy to have you if you were willing to work for free. Yeah, and I didn't mind working for free. I thought the experience was more, for me, the exciting part. When I went to Center Stage in Springfield, Mass., it was called Stage West. They gave me an apartment. I applied for food stamps. The apartment was a brand-new building in a downtown Springfield area. (laughs) I was learning. I was working at the theater every day. It was right across the street. And I was working with incredible artists. I, I am the, in fact, the cutter fitter, Georgia Carney, darling, mm-hmm. she knit a sweater for me for school days, my first film. Wow. So I was having a very enriching experience yeah. that was, you know, money couldn't pay for. So why'd you end up in Santa Fe? Georgia Carney, darling, actually recommended me to go to Santa Fe. She told me that it was a great place to get trained in costume design and costuming period and so you have to be recommended to go because this is now this is an opera this is an opera which is very hierarchical right yeah it is (laughs) yeah it is you build five operas from the ground up (laughs) in one summer so what was your original job title there oh i was an intern an intern and you literally can't you're not allowed or or it's not acceptable to speak to certain people in the oh right 
Yeah, there's definitely a hierarchy there. You cannot speak to the designers that come in. Your instruction is given to you from the first hand, not the cutter. The other stitchers, are they sit in their own kind of bank of stitching, their own sewing circle, if you would. <laughs> uh, and I realized after that experience with all the little all the little holes I had in my fingers from uh, all that hand sewing that uh, I didn't want to be a stitcher. Right. <laughs> so you've been paying your dues for a while now, a few years out of college. Why do you decide, I think in 1986, so what are we talking about, like two years out of college that you're going to L.A.? I don't think you necessarily knew people in L.A., did you? No, and it wasn't really something that I really aspired to. It was an offer that was proposed to me from relatives, and I was kind of halfway there already. So I said, okay. Halfway there because you had a uh, hope of working in the film industry? No, I was already like halfway across the country. Oh, I see. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So where in L.A. did you wind up? I was in Carson. Carson. I went to Carson. And, you know, I'd spent already, what, four months in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where there weren't any people of color besides the Native Americans there. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to Carson, I was like, yeah, yeah. I made it back. <laughs> so it was a fun year right. living with relatives in Carson, and that's where I landed. And I guess, again, it's sort of just a, a fateful thing, but from what I've read, you just happened to pick up the L.A. Times? Yeah, I read uh, the L.A. Time, the calendar section, and I saw Los Angeles Theater Center had just opened, and they had all these theaters under one roof, and I thought, you know, they need me. <laughs> and so for somebody who may not know the Los Angeles Theater Center, what exactly was it and where was it and just how did you break in? The Los Angeles Theater Center is located in downtown Los Angeles. It housed five theaters under one roof. So there was a proscenium thrust, theater in the round, experimental, and they put our, um, plays in rotation. So there was a high turnover of plays, high turnover of designers and actors that came in through that theater company, and they had a flourishing costume department. It was on the top floor of this large building, and they were constantly working on these plays, and I met a lot of designers through, through the LATC. And the way you actually pitched yourself to them was was how? What did you say? You need me? Well, I gave them my resume, and because I had Santa Fe Opera on it, people were impressed. Yes. And so first I was a dresser, and I dressed Bozeman and Lena, which was Madge Sinclair and Moses Gunn, mm -hmm. and Fool for Love with Richard Lawson and Pam Greer. Mm -hmm. I did Three Sisters, Vanya's Three Sisters, and I made friends, and I eventually talked myself into a position as the shop foreman for LATC, and I realized that I had never done that before. I never, uh, you know, when a designer came and said, I need $500 petty cash, I was like, $500? <laughs> uh, so I realized that was just not the role for me, right. and I switched over to being an assistant designer. And I was also uh, running the shows at night as a dresser. So I was kind of working down there around the clock. So this was the first real taste of what you've ended up doing, right? Where you're not only yourself creating costumes, but also having to almost be an executive, to be an executive, presiding over a whole team of people, right? 
I kind of not. I think I was just presiding over me because <laughs> I was like a lone wolf. I'd work with the designers one-on-one, Timmy and Al Saker, who was an Australian uh, designer who would come in and he'd design the costumes and the sets. And so he would leave a lot up to me to work on the costumes and he'd give me a direction and I'd go off and do most of it on my own. And, you know, I'd age and die because I had so many different skill sets from my past mm-hmm. that I could actually kind of implement a lot of things on my own. And that's kind of how that trajectory went for a whole year. Yeah. So how, I believe at LATC, does Spike Lee show up one night? This is at a time before, just before anyone really outside of Brooklyn I'd ever heard of him, right? Well, he actually showed up at Lula Washington's dance studio in South Central, where I was actually also doing a little free run, <laughs> freelance work. I was designing for a dance company called The Night for Dancing, and it was being performed in a small studio in South Central. And I was the costume designer. My friend Robbie Reed brought Spike to see this performance that was really popular. And What was he even doing in L.A.? He's such a creature of, of yeah. Brooklyn. Well, you know, he had finished She's Gotta Have It. He was known as an independent filmmaker. He hadn't taken She's Gotta Have It to the Cannes Film Festival yet, but people knew of him. Mm -hmm. So he stayed at Robbie's house Mm -hmm. with her mom and them, and, you know, he was kind of burgeoning as a filmmaker, and he was introduced to me. But I was still kind of, my mindset was on theater and opera and the arts in that vein. So a film director wasn't necessarily something that, I had in my sights. Well, let's talk about one reason that that might have been the case. How many black costume designers were there working in the film industry at that time? Mm, maybe one. There's a guy named Palmer Brown. He was doing, he, he's passed away since, but he was doing television. He was really the only one I knew. Mm-hmm. Francine Tanchuk had been supervising for some time, and she was trying to break into design as well or make a switch. She ended up uh, designing Glory mm. after I had uh, a design school days, but she hadn't started yet. So there were really probably one that I knew of. And is that, you know, is it your sense now, having been a part of the industry for so long, like, and and seen how it works, was that because of overt racism or just lack of imagination? I just think that the industry hadn't made a shift to opening up to stories that were more inclusive of what the real African-American spirit and experience was. Mm -hmm. And I think once that shift happened, it was about to happen. Mm -hmm. Robert Townsend had just finished Hollywood Shuffle, but it hadn't come out yet. Spike Lee had just finished She's Gotta Have It, but it hadn't come out yet. There was definitely a need for it. We were entering a new paradigm shift. The films that were out or the television shows that were out were still not reflective, representative Mm -hmm. of what was really going on in the black community. And I think once those stories started to be produced by the people who knew them, and that's African-Americans, then the door opened for other behind-the-scenes people to have those roles behind the camera. And I guess part of what made that possible was that, you know, this independent filmmaking boom that Spike was at the forefront of, I mean, it's, you didn't have to go through 
a whole system. Yeah. No. And that was their aim. Yeah. That was their aim. That was Spike Lee's aim. You know, he wanted to bring more people into the industry of color. He opened up his doors to internships. We were always bringing in more African-Americans on our crew. Mm -hmm. You know, it made for, you know, us doing things our own way and figuring things out on our own that not not necessarily was the maybe the tried and true way Mm -hmm. that Hollywood did things. But it did carve a new path and a new uh, way of presenting our stories. So the way you ended up actually working with him for the first time was there was a bit of a courtship, right? He was he was after you to. Yes. He kept sending these little postcards on photos of uh, scenes from She's Gotta Have It. And he'd say, you know, missed you at the screening. What up? And I'd get that and I go, wow, that's another postcard from Spike. That's cool. And I'd put it away. And then he'd say, you know, screening on this date, you know, are you coming? And I'd go, wow, on that date, that's cool. And I'd put it up. and uh, Not really responding, right? Not really responding because, you know, in the theater, I was working all the time. Yeah, yeah. And it just didn't dawn on me. And then Robbie called me one day and said, you know, Spike won the Grand Prix at Cannes. And I was like, wow, I should have answered one of those postcards. <laughs> right. So it didn't matter. He still continued to communicate with me. So now that he's on the map in a very big way, he's now got to figure out his follow-up too. She's got to have it. And a year later, that ends up being School Days, which was the first of, I think, 14 that you've done with him. Mm -hmm. Did this require you now moving to New York? No, I was bi-coastal for probably 12 years because in between Spike Lee joints, I would work with Robert Townsend and mm-hmm. Keenan Ivory Wayans. I did Five Heartbeats. I did I'm Gonna Get You Sucka. I was basically shared between the two of them. Right. And it was really funny when I'd get to New York, I'd have on, on my I'm Gonna Get You Sucka t-shirt <laughs> that was, uh, you know, full of gold right. and and Spike would roll his eyes and just, you know, <laughs> ignore it. Right. And then when I'd come back to L.A., I represented, you know, this, you know, New York, this more profound, you know, situation that I just came out of of New York. And I'd have a little bit of a cachet because I was New York, kind of the New York girl. Right. And it just really gave me this crazy balance of comedy and tragedy, in a sense, um, doing these great stories with Spike Mo Better Blues and Jungle Fever, Crooklyn and Clockers, and then coming back to L.A. and doing I'm Gonna Get You Sucker and the Five Heartbeats and Hammer Slammer. Uh, it was just really a fun life. I did two and a half films every year for like 10 years wow. and really cut my teeth. And when you were in New York, were you working out of Spike's production company, 40 Acres and a Mule in, oh, in yeah. Brooklyn? Yeah, we worked out of 40 Acres. First, we were in the firehouse on DeKalb Avenue. I was working out of the loft, which was way too small, but we tried it. <laughs> right. And then we worked out of St. Felix. Then we were on the corner from there. It was a parking garage wow. that Spike bought. And uh, one of Spike's team members told me about this parking garage. And he said, I got to show it to you. Spike just bought this building. It's going to be perfect for Malcolm X and when I saw it it had one of those elevators where you draw drive a car into it and the <laughs> elevator takes the car up to a different level so right. it was perfect for bringing yeah. racks of clothes in so that's where we had the costume department for Malcolm X and that's now where 48 years house we just uh, maybe 
two or three months ago, did our 250th episode of this podcast with, we wanted it to be like something really special. So Spike agreed to do, we went to New York, did it at 40 Acres. Uh, I think I saw the elevator in the area that you're talking about. It's an incredible place. Yeah, it is. Wow. So basically after school days, whenever Spike said he had a project going, you would make yourself available to do it? It just so happened I was. It was crazy. When I was finished with the film out in California, it would line up. Spike was doing a film in New York. Right. You know, from seeing him from almost the very beginning, what is it that made him and I, I guess still makes him so good, especially in the early days when you don't have everyone believing in you? What do you think makes him stand out? Spike believes in you. Spike believes in you. Spike doesn't care what everybody else thinks. Spike believes that your aesthetic is what's most important. His aesthetic is what's most important. Mm -hmm. And what we do together is what's most important. Don't let anybody tell you any different. And because of that, you're able to push through your ideas. You're able to sort through the art. You're able to look at color from your imagination and decide how this works in this medium. You're able to learn, you're able to flourish, and to have that kind of mindset and that kind of support from the person who is in the lead position Mm -hmm. is incredible. I have to ask you, you know, you mentioned a bunch of the early ones that that are great, but the one that I think might be not only my favorite Spike Lee movie, but maybe my favorite movie, period, is Do the Right Thing. So I have to ask you if you can give a little bit about just how that one came together. Also, from a costumes point of view, I mean, there was an LA Times profile of you a few years ago, quite a few years ago, that sort of summed up a conversation that you had with the reporter. And I don't know if this if they got it exactly correct what you were saying, but I want to read it back to you because I thought it was really interesting. Quote, Carter thinks Spike Lee is a frontrunner in bringing the urban look to the suburbs. In Do the Right Thing, Lee wore baseball jerseys, baseball caps, oversized jeans, and Nike athletic shoes, all considered mainstream today, close quote. So basically, was that just the way Spike actually dressed, or was that a look that you guys decided to go for for that film? And is that the root of how now, you you know, you throughout the 90s when I'm growing up, You've got white kids in suburbs wearing, trying to look like Spike Lee. Yeah. That was the way Spike dressed. Yeah. And he has a love for the sports, baseball, basketball, and he knows the history of sports. And um, we always knew that he wanted to do a film about the Negro Leagues. And, you know, his way, in my opinion, was to honor them and by wearing their jerseys. Mm-hmm. And so having Jackie Robinson's jersey on and do the right thing was honoring Jackie Robinson. Mm -hmm. And so he wears things that have meaning. He he doesn't just put things on that have no meaning or just to wear them for Mm -hmm. fashion. He wears things that have meaning. And he told me what he wanted to wear and do the right thing. So, you know, we went to Mitchell and Ness at the time that was doing the most authentic jerseys and we purchase that. So in terms of the overall look of Do the Right Thing, it was an enheightened version of Urban Fair, and uh, we wanted to depict the hottest day of the summer amongst youth in the Brooklyn community. 
and we wanted to saturate the color to emphasize the intensity of the day. So and sort of like neons and the stuff. The neons yeah. and saturation and also bring it into the evening where uh-huh. we could also still see this intense color and right. escalate the violence and escalate the intensity of what was about to happen. Mm-hmm. So it was stylized. Mm-hmm. Was something like Radio Rahim wearing love and hate, is that a costume designer decision or where does that originate? That was a Spike Lee choice. Spike Lee choice. The love and hate rings were made at Fulton Mall. Mm -hmm. They were in fashion to wear, not necessarily love and hate, Mm -hmm. which was written in the script, but to where you could wear your name, Mm -hmm. you could wear your girlfriend's name. There was a jeweler in Fulton Mall that you could go to, which is where I went and had the love and hate rings made. So part of this is urban fashion Mm -hmm. that you could get, you know, in the community. And by displaying that, we created, I feel, what the world could see as pop culture uh, for New York. Mm -hmm. And it grew into the mainstream. Yeah, it's amazing. And and that's not even getting into the, you know, the Rosie Perez look, the what you then did for the different generations that are in there with Ozzy Davis and Ruby Dee and, you know, with sort of the just very, very different stuff. So there are certain things that Spike uh, was very specific about, and then you just take it from there. Yeah, amazing. Also very interesting and something I didn't realize until I started prepping for this was that same year as Do the Right Thing, you did some work on, I believe, the pilot of a show called The Seinfeld Chronicles, (laughs) which ended up dropping two of those words and uh, becoming a, you know, fairly fairly well-known program, I think we could say. Yeah. How did you end up doing that. That's well, pretty far from yeah. <laughs> do the right thing. Well, you know, I was a costume designer right. and I was really pursuing that as a profession. And as I came back to Hollywood after working with Spike, I was, you know, just still pursuing, you know, my my career. And I landed Seinfeld. I remember, I think I went into interview with Larry David and the creators <laughs> And they liked me. Mm-hmm. I went to Jerry's apartment in Hollywood, and he showed me around. I remember he was really neat. His <laughs> closet was extremely neat. I had a difficult time really picking things because I didn't want to mess anything up. <laughs> From that came some some pretty, I, I guess nobody would have ever dreamed that it would become probably the most successful TV show ever in a lot of ways. Yeah, you never know how things are going to pan out. Going back to film and, and to Spike, one of the movies that you guys did that I think you've described as the the hardest job you ever had, even harder than Black Panther, which seems like it would have been pretty overwhelming in some ways, was Malcolm X. And that's because I guess there were just so many time periods to deal with. Is that right? Yeah. um, As I said, we worked out of that parking garage that Spike bought and, you know, it didn't have any heat in it yet. So God. we were working in the cold. We uh. were just trying to pack clothes in there. Maybe that would sort of insulate it a little bit. <laughs> it had the 20s through the 60s. Every floor was a different period. We fit all the background out of there. I did a lot of shopping in Chicago. I went there. I found a place that had closed down, and they had all these coats from the 40s. And so that scene where, you, where Joe Lewis wins the championship and everyone's cheering in the streets, well, people have on their own clothes underneath these coats that I bought mm. in Chicago and shipped to New York. It was cold in New York. And, you know, we were making the Nation of Islam uniforms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were all young. It was 90, 
one when we were creating that. I was 30 years old. So it was a a huge undertaking. But even at that time, you know, with only a few films under your belt at that point, you kind of knew somehow to go the extra mile for the research. Like, I, I understand going to Chicago to do shopping, but what I think might surprise people just that it wouldn't have occurred to them, you were also apparently going to Boston and looking at police records and stuff that had nothing directly to do with fashion on the surface. Why was something like that worth doing? I just really wanted to understand more about Malcolm X beyond the Alex Haley autobiography. And so I I went on a letter-writing campaign to the Department of Corrections in Boston to look at his file. I just wanted to understand, like, the truth in the man beyond those words that Alex Haley wrote. And I wanted to be able to make decisions about what he would be wearing. I felt I wanted to be informed Mm -hmm. to make good decisions because I I wouldn't have photos of every single thing that he might have worn. And there were a lot of photos, but I just wanted to have the confidence that I knew so much about him that I could say this period was this way and that period was that way. And so I wrote these letters and then I Uh, was given a date to meet with him at the Department of Corrections. And I'm from Springfield, so it was just an hour and a half drive to Boston. I walked in, and the lady had a stack of files on her desk, and she walked me through to a cubicle and gave me the files. And I opened them up, and there was his booking records with his photos, letters that he had written to the commissioner to be transferred to other prisons that had bigger libraries, his penmanship, it's all written in longhand. And there were so many letters and things that I knew I didn't have time to sit there and just read them all. Mm -hmm. So um, she showed me where their copy machine was, so I just stood there and just copied everything. Mm -hmm. And it was... It was valuable for when you then had to get down to making things. It was. It was. It really helped. It really helped. I think some of that movie was shot in Africa. With something like that, did you go? Had you been before? Was it important to have experienced Africa to do that? I'd never been to Africa. I did go. I was the only one from the costume department that went. So I was the designer, supervisor, dresser. I was the everything. I had an Egyptian team that worked with me. Little did I realize that they were doing things that were in their way of doing things. For example, the ihram, which is the uh, dress that they wear when they're doing their hajj. Mm -hmm. They wear very minimal clothes underneath, but it's like a large towel, large white towel that they wrap around their bodies to make this pilgrimage. Sometimes they wear it on the plane when they're going to make their hajj to Mecca, and it's white. Mm -hmm. And I knew that wearing white was difficult to shoot, so I asked my team there if they could tech down the white. Mm And one day I walked into our offices and I went one floor up, which was uh, to the rooftop. I opened the door to the rooftop and there were men with these huge tubs squatting down and teching the ihrams in these big tubs, which I didn't realize they were going to be doing it by hand for these dozens of people and putting them on clotheslines on the roof. So it was an incredible experience for me to, um, you know, escort 
this film all the way through to this. It was a hodge for me in mm-hmm. some ways. And probably one that you could still draw upon when you did Black Panther, just the idea of, you know, yourself Culture. experiencing it. Yeah. Yes. Spike, and I think we should just, to, you know, to speak to Spike's level of trust in you and your collaboration with him, I mean, it sounds like you were actually asked to cast extras for certain scenes in that, which is not something I imagine too many costume designers are asked by directors to do. Well, we were a team, and we were very few of us that made that trip to Egypt. And he one day said, pick 10 people to go to this one scene out of, after we did that big scene in the desert, pick 10 people to go in this smaller scene in the tent where Malcolm X is eating with people of different skin tones. And I remember seeing this really kind of German guy, and I remember seeing this really dark guy, Nigerian guy just from the whole day. And I guess Spike realized that I had been working with everyone Mm -hmm. all day that I would probably have, you know, he had been too, but, you know, that I would probably have, you know, the ability to just go pick them out. And and I did. And I'm really proud of that scene when I see it in the movie. That's great. So for your work on that film, you ended up becoming the first black person, man or woman, ever to receive a Best Costume Design Oscar nomination. I think we should also say, you know, just it's a huge deal to receive a costume design Oscar nomination. But I wonder if there was sort of added significance knowing that you were, in a way, the Jackie Robinson of of that profession here, in a sense, to crack that ceiling or, you know, to be the first of anything is a pretty amazing thing. But for an Oscar category to be the first nominated and, you know, we'll get to what could happen, you know, in a week as another potential first. But let's deal with this first. What was that? What was that like? Oh, it was pretty special. I feel like I was a lone wolf for a long time, though. You know, Mm -hmm. I felt like when I first came into the industry, there weren't very many. And I was kind of trying to form a network and a sisterhood or brotherhood, you know, all along. So I kind of felt like I was mentoring all the way. And and to have being given that honor was really wonderful. And I felt like I was being a role model. Yeah. So meanwhile, maybe I'm sure as as a result of the of the work of the films and then certainly of the nomination, which raises a person's profile, you're being increasingly approached by not just Spike Lee, but all these other, you know, filmmakers that would like to work with you. And I wonder what became your considerations for whether or not to take on a project, because now, you know, it's not just I've got a job now. It's like what you, you have to decide how you want to spend your time. Yes, it's a big question. I still love what I do. I still, uh, I don't feel like I'm in any kind of uh, pigeonhole of any kind. I don't feel like I'm, you know, one way. I'm the girl who does the, you know, African-American stories. Mm -hmm. I have lots of other things on my resume, too. So I'm a storyteller. I love telling great stories. And as broad as the stories are, as broad as I can go with my artistry. So I just love to create. And I'm hoping that I get some really juicy projects. But does it literally start with you look at a script and say, this is good or it's not good to me? Or is it about this is a filmmaker I've I think I'd like to work with or this is a period I've Mm -hmm. never worked within? Or what Mm -hmm. what are the things that when, you know, let's say a guy just, you know, wants to work with you Mm -hmm. who's grown up admiring your work. Yeah. 
I think it's a little bit of all of that. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to tell what a person's going to do with a script. I have read scripts that I thought, hmm, I don't know if the script is good, and then it turns out to be great. Mm-hmm. So it's it's either the filmmaker mm-hmm. or it's the script. Sometimes mm-hmm. the script reads really great, and then it doesn't do well. Right. So you you weigh everything out. You weigh everything out. And if someone's enthusiastic about working with me, that's that adds credibility, mm-hmm. too, because you really want to be a part of the team. You don't want to work with someone who's like, <laughs> oh, you know, I didn't get who I wanted, so I'll take her. <laughs> well, how about actors? Do you have much to do with the actors on these projects? I'm, I'm sure, like, at a point there's the fittings and things like that but how deep does it go and i'm going to give one specific example Mm -hmm. and maybe we can use to talk about this Mm -hmm. starting with what's love got to do with it in 1993 all the way through 25 years later on black panther you have made five films that angela bassett starred in Mm -hmm. is that purely coincidental or is that because you guys like working with each other It's not coincidental entirely. I don't think that Angela goes into a meeting and says, I have to have Ruth Carter. It's nice that we have a relationship. Uh, I think that producers take that into account. I have the same, I think, amount of films with Eddie Murphy. Uh I think I have the same number with Samuel Jackson. But I don't like to lead in with that because I think that I want the director to have the choice. I want the director to feel comfortable that it's not the actor that creates the aesthetic. It's the story that creates the choice of who is the artisans that will create the aesthetic. And so you obviously do months of work, sometimes many months before the cameras start rolling. Once the cameras start rolling, do you need to still be around in case there are issues with the costumes that come up or are you done when the movie starts? Oh, no, I'm there. I'm there. When I first started coming out of Spike Lee and coming back to Hollywood, I'd hear all of these uh, comments about, why are you on set? You know, designers are not on set. You know, why are you here? You should go home and we'll call you if we need you on set. And I thought, really, is that how people do it here? I couldn't even imagine not being on set when the costumes are working. I love these costumes. Mm-hmm. And that's just how I roll. I love to be in the thick of it. Mm -hmm. I love to be there when things are being established and and kind of watch a couple times after. It it sometimes requires that I go away and go back to the workshop and manage things or see things through, answer questions. But I have to be there when when clothes are being established. Mm -hmm. I think I I shepherd the actors Mm -hmm. to the set, Mm -hmm. and that's important to me. In 1997, en route to your second Oscar nomination, you collaborated with the guy who, in a lot of ways, is is probably the closest thing to God that there is in Hollywood in, in the view of a lot of people, Mr. Steven Spielberg, on a movie called Amistad, which I'm curious how it came about. I'm also curious for you, when you end up on a, on a project with somebody like like that. I mean, that's is it intimidating? Is it exciting? Do you feel you've arrived? Do you feel like you better... Bring your A game. Just what? What's that like? 
You know, once again, just like with Malcolm X, and eventually it's there was a, uh, happened again with Black Panther. You know, you feel like you have to bring your A game, and you at this pinnacle in your career where you know, like, wow, you're at the oh wow, you know, mm-hmm. stage. And I went in to meet with Stephen, and it was at Amblin mm-hmm. in his offices. I remember there was like a conference room, and all of the chairs were on the perimeter of the room, except for two that were across from each other. And I guess I was like, oh, that must be Stevens, and that must be mine (laughs) and uh, they didn't give you a script so I went and got like the cliff notes for Amistad you know the true experience of the happening and I sat there and he came in and he said you know I really loved your work in Malcolm X that was nice to hear Mm -hmm. we talked a little bit and he said well here's the script go home and read it and let me know tomorrow if you'd like to do this and I thought I don't even have to let him know (laughs) tomorrow. Right, right. So as that experience rolled out, I really wanted to impress him all the time, every day. I wanted to like, you know, see what I did, you know, (laughs) see what I did, see what I did. Right. And, you know, there were days that I think, you know, he was open and there were days where he was pretty intense and focused and I had to learn, you know, when to walk in. But I remember one time asking him what Anthony Hopkins should look like or what he wanted him to wear in the scene in his bedroom where he was going to have a conversation with Jaimin Hunsu. And he said, I want him to look adorable. (laughs) And I said, okay. (laughs) So I went back and I gave Anthony Hopkins a nightshirt. And then as we got ready to go to set, I went to set early. And when Anthony Hopkins arrived, Stephen opened up his arms and he said, you look adorable. (laughs) I loved that. That's great. So it seems like the majority of the filmmakers with whom you've collaborated have been black, right? Robert Townsend, John Sanglin, Reggie Hudlin, Spike Lee. Yeah. And when they have been white, it's often been on films like Amistad where it's somewhat about the black experience. Is that something that you like or do you believe that it's a, again, maybe a failure of imagination on the part of white filmmakers to come to you for stories that are about other things? Hmm. Well, I did Keeping Up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I did Ty Cobb. Mm-hmm. So I haven't evaluated it in that way, but I can see your point. I don't think that they are all that confident with black experience to not have a person of color behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. I think it's responsible on their part to hire someone like me to come on their team to do the costume Mm -hmm. design. I don't think it's necessary because just like I can go behind the scenes on a white project Mm -hmm. and, and understand it and do the costumes for Jerry Seinfeld or Ty Cop, <laughs> but right. I think it's responsible. Yeah. I wondered if the butler, which came along in 2013, almost 21 years after Malcolm X, it seems like in some ways it's a similar challenge because maybe even a greater challenge because we're talking about this time eight decades and famous people. So people know what they looked like and what they wore and all of that, as opposed to a lot of other than Malcolm X, maybe many of the other people in Malcolm X were not people we'd know what how you know what they looked like so was that with the butler particularly daunting it was because you're kind of cutting through their celebrity as well as bringing in a notable figure to sort of morph the two looks and you know they also have some ideas about how they want to 
portray the character. So um, Cecil Gaines' wife was paid by Oprah Winfrey, mm-hmm. and Cecil Gaines himself was paid by Forrest Whitaker. Mm-hmm. And so throughout that journey, I would present the real photographs of the people to the actors who were also the celebrities. Mm-hmm. And so we would make very clear decisions of how their nuances could be played out. So that was very fast, too, because right. these people are very busy. So when Jane Fonda came in, we worked out her clothing really quickly. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, the red Chanel suit and done, done and done. Wow. And it was I heard a funny thing about Liev Schreiber wanting a specific... <laughs> <laughs> yes, the uh, way the collar bar fit. And what did you Well, hear? not even only that, that I guess about the, the tightness of pants. Wasn't there something about... Oh, I forgot that I story. think he had said something about... Well, first of all, I remember myself reading about LBJ feeling that he wanted his pants let out oh, because he thought... There was a... Yeah, there was a recordings of LBJ yes. in his tight pants. <laughs> or not want... Or he wanted them let out loose. because he thought he was... He was very well endowed or whatever his issues oh, were. That. And so I guess I had read that Leah said to you, we got to make sure these are, we can't have tight pants here. Yeah. He played that recording for me and I'm Did sure it. I made those adjustments. Yeah. <laughs> so what's it like when over the course of your career, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, you were sort of the very rare black female costume designer making films, probably even rarer were black female directors. And then over the course of your career, I think you've worked with with two, Gina Prince-Bythewood on Love and Basketball and then Ava DuVernay on Selma. Mm -hmm. From seeing what they're up against up close when they're trying to get their movies made, all of that, it's hard enough to break into the business, it sounds like, just being black, period. But Mm -hmm. being a black woman seems maybe even harder, right? Yeah, it's hard for both of us, you know, and they they especially have, you know, to be tough and they have to lead a whole ship, you know, leading 150 people who are crew members, you know, and, and you know, half a dozen department heads is not easy. And uh, there's a lot of questions that you an- are answering all the time, every day, all day long. I'm sure there are a lot of naysayers and doubters that you have to contend with. So they develop a very tough skin. It's not an area for the faint of heart. Right. And I understand that. And so I think that you have a relationship of respect Mm -hmm. and you lead with that and you let them know that you understand that they are the leader. A lot of times when there's two black women, you think that, you know, we're going to be volleying for who's the queen, but not the case. We respect each other. Um, Ava showed me nothing but admiration and love on that set. Gina let me know by no uncertain terms that I was a valued member of her team, and that gave me room to grow and, and present to them what my artist was mm-hmm. at the same time being open and quiet to listen to what they wanted. One of my favorite details of Selma, which I noticed watching the movie, and then I read that it was a very conscious thing with you and David Oyelowo, was the collar. The collar, because uh, that little fleshy area of Dr. King around his collar was important. He just could had to be there. So you just made David's shirt his a little tight. Yeah. <laughs> his shirt collar. That's great. So this leads us to Black Panther. And I guess I want to ask you how you first heard about the project, why you think you heard about the project, you know, why they thought to come to you. Because you've said 
hey, I've never made a comic book superhero movie before. I don't think any movie that you had worked on was on this scale. Very few movies ever have been. So how did it come about and why do you think it did? It was a surprise. I was uh, wrapping up, uh, I guess, a little press junket for Roots. I was called by my agent that I was going in to meet on Black Panther. And it was at Marvel and she briefed me on it. And I thought, you know, wow, you know, again, like a little mystery uh, hung over my head. I had to call a few people to find out, you know, about the Black Panther and about, you know, the story behind it. Uh I just I didn't get overly tense at first until I got a little bit of information from uh, Marvel. And I thought, this is not enough information. (laughs) Is there going to be a script? I did not get a script. So I had to dig a little bit more with those who I who knew the story. Uh And we began to all collaborate on images. So was it Marvel saying, you're the person who makes the most sense for this? Or is it Ryan Coogler already on board saying, I want Ruth Carter? Or where did this start? You know, I was one of a few people that they brought in. Mm -hmm. And that was from Ryan. I'm I'm assuming that Marvel had people that they wanted Ryan to meet. Mm -hmm. And there was a list that Mm -hmm. was formed. And I went in. I don't know who else was on that list, but I was uh, brought in. And Did you have to sort of pitch them on your concept? I pitched them on my concept, but my concept was as much a mystery for me as <laughs> it was a mystery about what they were going right. to do with it. <laughs> and I heard that when you entered the Marvel universe in a way, literally, when you showed up at Marvel, you got a taste of just how secretive they really are. Yeah. You know, when you get that eye exam and that that <laughs> air blows into your eye, yeah. it felt like that. It really... I mean, it was a place that, you know, you can see was just very secretive about, you know, what they're doing. To the extent that when you wanted to show them your concepts? Yeah. my <laughs> I, I, I amassed all my images in a Dropbox. A big mistake. <laughs> Because it wouldn't open. Their security blocked that. And I that. couldn't figure it out. I was just thinking to myself, you know, it always opens. Right. Why is it not opening now of all times? And Nate Moore yeah. opened it up for me and uh, <laughs> we began to share. You know, you've had to work within confines when it's to do with history where you know that you can only venture outside the line so much because it has to be faithful to that. With Marvel... It's not history, but it's there in a way it is because for people that know the comic books and everything, they have a very clear idea of who these characters, particularly the main character, is and are. So with something even like the suit, which is going to be the most prominent costume in the movie, how do you respect what exists while still putting your own stamp on it? Yes, that was the kind of like the itch for me. I wanted to respect the comic book legend and the Marvel fans and what they expected to see and what Marvel wanted. But I I, I really needed to bring in the detail and connect him to Wakanda and give him a, a story. There was this veining line that went throughout the suit, which lit up with this lighted purple color when he was faced with this kinetic energy. But it wasn't enough to make him Wakandan. So I added a surface uh, pattern, a little triangle, and that triangle was significant to me because it was the sacred geometry of Africa. I saw it throughout the artistry of Africa. You know, it's kind of like the father, the 
mother and the child. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was a good symbol for T'Challa. And also because he walks around Wakanda in the suit. Right. And uh, without the helmet, it needed to feel like African cloth. And with that veining line that traveled around the suit and this triangular surface texture, it really did feel like African cloth. Yeah. And you, just to make it clear for, for our listeners, so we first saw Black Panther in Captain America Civil War, which you had not worked on. So we'd seen him, I guess, in a costume, but the costume evolved when you came on board. Yes. We now see him with this. And another thing that, that happened with Black Panther where it's it's going to be different, just a different look, is the whole way these costumes look within Wakanda, which we hadn't really seen. And I wanted to ask you about that because the production designer on Black Panther, Hannah Beekler, who we can also note is the first black woman ever nominated for that category's Oscar, you know, she's, I guess, responsible for the the universe in which your costumes are going to exist. Does that mean that you two had to, and maybe on any movie, the costume designer and the production designer, do you have to spend a lot of time making sure that, you know, your things go together? Sure. I go to her office and sit down and we talk and we share and she comes to my office and she wants to see stuff, you know, and we share and we laugh and we die and we (laughs) jump up and down and we scream. Is it mostly color palettes that you're looking at? I'm looking at the textures. I'm looking Mm -hmm. at what she's using. I'm looking at how things are developed. I'm looking at sketches. We're having conversations. We're having meetings. They also developed a Bible that she and Ryan Mm -hmm. sat down Mm -hmm. and did. And that that was super important because, you know, Ryan is in so many meetings. I can't always get to him. Sometimes I get one question and that's all I have time for, one or two questions. You know, he's trying to make himself as accessible as possible to me. But, you know, sometimes you're not even always as ready as you think you are for all the questions that you might have. So the fact that they developed this manual that gave you an idea of how Wakanda plays out. You know, it's a sustainable community. It's a barefoot community. The rail system, how that looks, uh, the Jabari tribe, you know, how their their wood sculptures look, how they're, you know, how incredible it is. And then we all get together and have meetings, you know, there's these meetings, they're like three times a week. And there's so many meetings where you have, you know, Kevin and Victoria and Lewis, they all are in the same room with all of the department heads and you're sharing uh, color palettes and Rachel Morrison, the DP, she's looking at the colors and, and because there was a clear color palette with that, we were going to use for Mm -hmm. different characters and doing different kinds of stunts where they needed to have green screen or blue screen. So we're sharing, we're sharing a lot. That color Um, palette, though, it's interesting because it sounds like Ryan maybe sort of guided your decisions for for the colors of certain characters for a reason, right? Oh, yeah. It was a very, very strict color palette, and I actually could not deviate outside of it without checking with him. Mm -hmm. And there were color palettes that kind of got real close to each other, and he would ask, can I see it in person? And I go, oh, my God, that (laughs) orange is very close to the red. (laughs) So we were uh, very clear about what we were creating and then there was that little wiggle room in between where those decisions were mine. But basically, for some of the key characters, obviously the Black Panther is 
wearing black mostly. Yes. The Denai Guerrero character is wearing Dora red. Milaje. Yes. They are red. And throughout the comics, sometimes the Dora Milaje were seen in different colors, but for the most part, they were seen in red. Mm-hmm. And so we used the red for the Dora. And then Lupita's character? River Tribe in, in greens. Green. Yes. And is there any, Some somebody has speculated, and maybe it's true, maybe it's overanalyzing, Black, red, and green are, are the colors of the Pan-African flag? You know, I don't, it's the liberation flag. I think mm-hmm. Pan-African is yellow, green, Got and it. red. Liberation flag is red, black, and green. Red is the blood we shed to get the green land, and our color is black. And is that just coincidental, or is that... No, it was deliberate. Deliberate, mm-hmm. because you wanted that, or Ryan wanted it? Ryan wanted to have the red, black, and green liberation colors on T'Challa, Okoye, and Nakia when they mm-hmm. entered the casino. Why did Michael B. Jordan wear blue? Blue was a color of authority. Mm-hmm. We kind of associate that with the police. Mm-hmm. And also the border tribe was mm-hmm. associated with blue. Mm-hmm. They patrol the border of Wakanda. So we kept that blue in Killmonger as a military, as military involvement. So we kept that in there. I read something that you said that I have to ask you to elaborate about because on the surface, it's it's. I don't see what you mean, but I get. I read on, and I think it's fascinating. Quote, I looked at Wakanda like Manhattan, close quote. <laughs> How so? Well, you know, I had to study quick, and so I needed those kinds of analogies to sort of understand things really fast. Right. And uh, Wakanda had a central business district. It had a Wakandan University district, just like NYU. It had a step <laughs> town, just like, you know, Soho. It had a central park. Right. It had a rail system, just like the subway system. There were so many analogies, like a lot of c- cities, but especially New York. Mm-hmm. So, and also they had names for each one of mm-hmm. those areas in Wakanda. So I had this easy association and I could actually visualize it and it helped me to formulate looks for yeah. each area easily and quickly. Oh, it's fascinating. And then one other thing that I, in prepping for this, I just couldn't believe, but I didn't even know it was possible. You were making some of these costumes with 3D printers. Can you explain for a listener Just, first of all, what 3D printers are and then also how you can make costumes with them? Yes, it's a new technology with regards to making clothing with 3D printers, but they've been around. You see toys that are made out of, with 3D printing, you know, um, architects use it a a lot when they're making replicas of how they're going to build buildings and things like that. And it was kind of new for me to, to enter into this 3D printing role because it's not something that we typically use when we're making costumes or Mm -hmm. clothing. But I was enlightened to it by an architect, professor at UCLA, Julia Corner, Mm -hmm. who was working with a fashion uh, designer, Iris Van Erpen, and she was using 3D printing in some of her fashions and using this professor of architecture at UCLA. And they had a printer in Belgium that was using a 
particular type of material in their printer that was flexible and mm. wearable. Mm. And so I uh, met with Julia and she explained to me the process and she showed me some samples of how flexible it could be and it could be as flexible and bendable as like a rubber or a little less, a little bit more rigid depending on mm -hmm. what you were trying to achieve. And so I felt like with Ramonda, the queen, mm -hmm. we were going to give her this Ishikolo hat, the the South African married mm -hmm. woman's hat, just like Ramonda had in the comics. But I was, if if Wakanda is this forward-thinking nation, this advanced nation in technology, Ramonda's hat has to be perfectly cylindrical. Mm -hmm. It may have even some scientific, uh, special meaning behind its its scientific meaning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I thought it should be three D printed. It should be created in the computer and perfectly made. That's and that's amazing. where we went. It seems like for 99% of movies, your involvement ends when the movie goes in the can and you move on with your life. That has not happened with this movie, which came out, I think, over a year ago now and has never really stopped. And I want to just ask what that's been like for you generally, but specifically on a few moments. For instance, on the night of the world premiere when so many people in tribute to and solidarity with the movie came in their own African-inspired outfits. Then on Halloween, when children of all colors and backgrounds were wearing Wakanda, you know, inspired outfits. And then on nomination morning, when you guys made a lot of history in a lot of different categories, not least being the first comic book movie to get nominated for Best Picture. So, And then, of course, your own nomination. So I guess the sort of experience of seeing costumes that you were responsible for being emulated out in the world, whether it's at a glitzy thing like a premiere or just kids everywhere, and then just your own experience with the nominations. Well, it all started with the dropping of the first look at the film when they dropped that at the NBA All-Star yeah. uh, game. And I started getting tweets. And I was responding to them like, wow, did you see that? I wonder, I, I saw a little Himba in there and I was like tweeting back. Yeah, that's Himba. And that's, <laughs> yeah, that's Tuareg. And, and then I, the next day I started seeing articles coming out of my tweets. And I thought, ooh, wow. They're really responding mm -hmm. to this. And I think then another trailer dropped around November, and it started to really build, and I started to really feel it. But then there was a few people that, you know, said, well, let's just wait and see when it comes out. You don't know. But I just could, it was, it was like a low drum roll, <laughs> you know, that I could tell it was going to be something special for a lot of people. And when it did come out and everyone started dressing in their regalia, I felt like people were really wanting to see something like this, that they really wanted to celebrate culture and they wanted to see themselves again. There was a need for it. And then as we went through the year, a lot of things started really playing out for me. I got a lecture tour and, you know, people started telling me how much the film mm -hmm. meant to them for their own culture. My mm -hmm. first lecture was in Mexico mm -hmm. and people were so excited about it for their own culture. And then I, I started hearing about in Korea how they were wearing their traditional costumes to those screenings. And I thought, you know, people were really ready to connect culture to, you know, modern lifestyle to to you know 
being a part of the world, mm-hmm. being connected. And so it just hasn't stopped. It really just <laughs> hasn't stopped. And I'm just so proud of it. And, and to get a nomination for uh, such a phenomenon and being at the pinnacle of its success by directing the costumes is a great, great honor. I, I, I couldn't have asked for more when I started out this whole idea of being a costume designer. I had no idea it would lead here. I have to tell you one funny story, which is that there is a 90-something-year-old lady who who used to work in the business before she retired years ago. Not really retired, because still, you know, somewhat keeps a, a foot in it. And I went to, a, like, a holiday thing at her house, and she had just seen Black Panther. And I was very curious, what's your, you know, what did you make of it? And the thing that she was going on and on about the most were the headdresses. And she was saying, wow. where can I get these? And I was thinking, I'm not sure that's a politically correct thing. I don't I know if it's, it. but I thought that is the ultimate compliment yeah, that a 90-something-year-old white lady oh, yeah. wanted a, a Black Panther headdress. Yeah, it connected us, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. So awesome. Final thing is what we call rapid fire, just the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Was Black Panther the only, was that the reason why you were not doing Black Klansman or, or is your collaboration with Spike, are you, is that chapter closed? I think Black Panther was the reason why I didn't do Black Klansman. Have things gotten better for black people in costume design over the course of your career? Are there now, you know, you were saying there was maybe one other person. Is yes, that... I have mentored a lot of black costume designers that are working today. Which other costume designers for film past and present, maybe one each, do you hold in the highest regard? I still love Ann Roth, and Adrian uh, Mm -hmm. is pretty high up there and will remain. On Tuesday night, you will be receiving the Costume Designers Guild Career Achievement Award. That's an amazing thing, especially in light of the fact that you're still in the the prime of your career. You're not, uh, you know, usually at the Oscars, they trot out somebody with a walker, but we're, (laughs) we're far from that. What does that mean to you? Career achievement means that I have finally um, shown myself to have the honor of being an expert and my colleagues are are holding me up in that high in that high level and I'm happy to accept their placement. Mm -hmm. This third Oscar nomination ties you with Viola Davis and Octavia Spencer for the most Oscar nominations for a black woman, period, across all categories. When you heard that, how did you process that? I never knew that. that you didn't know that? brand new information, and wow. Mm-hmm. I, I, I processed, at, processed that as like, wow, am I really in their category? No way. Well, I don't know. I think that's, I think you certainly are. But last question. And this is going to be for for people in who are into fashion who are listening. I'm, I know there's going to be a a lot of interest in your answer to this at the Oscars on February 24th. Who and what will you be wearing? Ha ha ha! Well, um, my neck piece is a Wakanda inspired piece, reminiscent of the Queen. Mm-hmm. My dress is by a dear friend, 
B. Michael of America, who also has adorned Cicely Tyson many times, mm-hmm. very classy designer who knows gowns. I'm sorry to say I was not going to dr- design my own dress. Too much stress there. <laughs> it's a beautiful piece. That's great. Well, have a great time and congratulations. And thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.